This show is brought to you by the guys at bullbitcoin.com. If you're in Canada and you want to buy Bitcoin, this is the place to do it. Bull Bitcoin is a non-custodial exchange, which means when you make the purchase order, you input a receive address. So as soon as the Bitcoin is bought, it goes directly to your own self-custody. Speaking of which, if you need a little help with that, if you're not super confident about your self-custody or your security setup, the same guys operate bitcoinsupport.com where they have a variety of choices and packages available to choose from to help make sure that you get your Bitcoin self-custody arrangement set up securely, but also in a manner that you're going to be comfortable interacting with. Whether you choose to get some help with it or you choose to go to loan, the cold card Bitcoin hardware wallet by CoinKite is an excellent and trusted tool to have in your Bitcoin self-custody toolkit. This is the primary choice for the guys at bitcoinsupport.com. It's a primary choice for a lot of experienced Bitcoiners. They have an excellent brand and name and track record in the space. And they recently dropped the MK4 version of the cold card hardware wallet. With this version, you have a USB-C connector. You have NFC tap for all data types, PSBT, address, etc. You have a dual secure element. You have a USB virtual disk mode and lots of other fun stuff and features that, of course, we've all come to expect from the team at Coldcard and CoinKite. Visit CoinKite.com to learn more. And of course, check out all the other awesome products they have for helping you engage with your Bitcoin more securely and also having a bit of fun while you're at it. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy the show. Let's do it. All right. We're live. Owen, how are you, man? Thanks for doing this. Very well. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to speaking with you one day. So uh, tell me what's going on. You know, I, I love your, your Twitter handle, uh, Twitter handle beef back better. And I did a shout out saying that I felt like having some random plebcast episodes and, and you hit me up. So uh, what's on your mind? What are you up to? Um, yeah. So I used to be a bit more active on Twitter under, under a different name and I'm from Australia and, as you know, like shit got pretty hectic there over the last couple of years. So I kind of started to take a bit of a low profile and um, also took the opportunity to, to do one of my long-term dreams to set up a farm, actually do some hands-on farming. So I kind of made the most of the closed borders and uh, set up in a rural area and kind of hunkering down, but then still had itchy feed, seeing what happening in El Salvador and finally managing to be able to legally leave the country I thought I better have a holiday and uh, El Salvador was the first place on the list. I Am I right in assuming that in rural areas in Australia it wasn't so crazy as in like Sydney and Melbourne and that kind of stuff? Definitely yeah um, and that's why I quickly went to a rural area um, but you know you could still get they were sending police out into the into the small towns to check if people were checking into the local shop, like, and giving big fines. And a lot of those fines are now being reversed, but I know people who were fined like in Australian dollars, I think like $5,000. So like 4,000 wow. US for being Why are outside they being five reversed? Uh, I don't know. Um, a lot of people just didn't pay them and, um, I think they you can appeal it pretty easily, and they just drop them. But um, yeah, just for just for driving outside of five kilometers from your home, which in the rural areas is absurd. Like everything's more than five kilometers away. Um, you were allowed to go shopping, or you were allowed to go to a pharmacy, um, but you weren't allowed to just go and exercise or something. So you couldn't even get as far as the beach, um, even though I live in a coastal area. 
yeah, it just it was terrifying. I'm so disgusted by Australia. Just yeah, but maybe well, it, maybe it shouldn't have been such a surprise. I mean, even if you were already very critical, I mean, I'm from Canada and it was a very, very similar situation there. But even if you were already critical of, you know, broadly speaking, how the state operates, uh, I think the last two years, they went in a direction so rapidly that even those among us who were the biggest critics were, you know, surprised at how quickly they went in that direction. But, you know, I, I, you know, we've, we've all probably said a lot about the last two years and I, I've become like increasingly disinterested in, in well, one revisiting, but even following it, you know, it's, yes, it's, it's absolute fucking insanity. And here we are trying to contribute to and build something in parallel that is much better and more free. And, uh, you know, and that's what we're trying to do. Right. And I, um, and, um, I don't, and I don't mean to say you can't talk about it here today, but I like it's so odd. It's been and I think this is partially because the pendulum seems to be maybe gently swinging in the other direction. Although, you know, I want to be careful not to overestimate what's happening, uh, you know, or be overly optimistic about what's happening. But it's just um, it doesn't take up much of my uh, headspace anymore. And I'm, I guess I'm I'm glad I can direct it at more uh, productive ends. Yeah, absolutely. We've all heard all of these stories before so many times. It still feels good to talk about it with other people who are also really dismayed and feeling very isolated through through the period. But at the, at the end, it's like, oh, man, yeah, you've heard it all before. There are lots of people who are much worse off than me. I came out of it really well. I think the people who came, who who are really damaged are the people who are really on board with this shit and are now just like staying home, still terrified and overweight and out of work. And like, so at least I'm not one of them. But yeah, there's still a burden to carry. Um, but yeah, just just quickly to finish on Australia, like um, um, it's certainly better now, and they've dropped the vaccine passes to go to cafes and restaurants. Finally, in most of the states, I think all of the states now, and technically you're allowed to leave, come and go now without quarantine, even if you're unvaccinated. But the airlines are still enforcing it, so that's a bit shaky. Um, and we have a federal election coming up, and in a couple of weeks, and. I can't help but feel some hope, even though I know like democracy is a load of shit. Um, but there is actually a small but but very vocal and strong political opposition to the vaccine passports, to lockdowns, to mandatory vaccination. Um, and there has to be like one or two or three or maybe five million Australians out of 25 million who are actually really supportive of that. And uh, it might be enough to get a balance of power that might slow down the uh, the demise of Australia. The, the, like they're even openly talking about pushing back against World Economic Forum and UN and World Health Organization, global pandemic ma management measures and this sort of stuff. And they could maybe get the balance of power and could maybe turn things around. But maybe I'm uh, <laughs> maybe I'm dreaming. Eternal optimist. That it's, yeah. Well, well, I was pretty pessimistic for the last two years, and I kept being absolutely correct about my predictions. Unfortunately, so I stopped making predictions. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I agree. Let, let's talk about more positive things. Well, yeah, just, I mean, the final silver lining there is that I think maybe you're, because like those words and people bringing up these topics like fiat currency and central banking and the World, World Economic Forum and all of these interests that are seemingly attempting to control people's lives, like there does seem to be more attention having been brought to them by people that previously you perhaps would have had like mostly an apathy about it all. And so perhaps it is the case that more people are asking these questions. And that's why it seems like 
there's a growing resistance to those forces, which is wonderful, you know, and I guess it's just hopefully more of those people turn that, you know, um, turn that observation into, you know, energy into a, a budding solution. And obviously we think that budding solution is, is Bitcoin and all the, the peripheral things that are related to Bitcoin, as I'm sure we'll discuss today. Mm. Yeah, there's more you, people every day that are waking up now, and sadly, it's sometimes it's because they they know someone who's like actually died or had a heart attack or they've had an issue themselves from these experimental medicines. So, yeah, uh, but definitely, there's there's more people every day who are starting to think about freedom again. So that's good to see. I had to get. I, I've been saying for a while, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Maybe we're we're swinging the right way now. Yeah, I mean, we can be we can be cautiously cautiously optimistic, I guess. Um, but you said you mentioned in uh, in the DMs that we sh- we that you sent me that uh, you had taken that time during the pandemic to, you know, you had a career in agriculture and organic farming and certification and, and that kind of stuff. And then you had taken it upon yourself to actually build out like a, a grass fed beef operation or something like that. So one, you know, can you uh, expand a bit on that? And two, what's going on with it now that you're away? I mean, are you, are you out for good or do you intend on going back? Um. I have someone looking after the farm now. Fortunately, I found a very reliable young fellow and employed him just, it's only a small farm. So it's only like 13 acres. Um, I've been working in organic agriculture for 20 years, but in certification. Um, so I've visited a lot of farms and um, learnt a lot in those travels throughout Australia and Asia Pacific region, um, but had never really tried it hands-on for myself. And so it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to try to leave the country a couple of years ago. And when that sort of fell through, I went back to another plan that I'd had for a long time and managed to find this small property not too far from the coast, really good uh, fertile area, not bad cattle country, and thought now was the time. Uh, sadly, I had to sell some Bitcoin, but uh, <laughs> the value of the property has gone up more than Bitcoin in that time. So I'm not, <laughs> that's not punishing me yet. <laughs> it probably right, will punish right. me at some point. Uh, yeah, so... Um, Actually doing the farming hands-on is has been a great experience, setting up this small farm, only in a small way. It's enough, it produces enough food for friends and family, enough beef, cattle for, for How many heads would and, 13 uh, acres hold? I've only got like a dozen cattle, 10 to 15. Yeah, but it's a small breeding operation, so I've got some calves coming on already now. Um, What's been it been supplying like? some beef. Oh, it's great. It's a great lifestyle. Um, that's hard because, work. because you know, I think from my conversations, a ton of Bitcoiners have that sort of thing in the plans. I mean, a, a lot of them obviously prefer a diet that's largely constituted by that form of nutrition. But I think, you know, I think a lot of us have a future notion of like this, our own little citadel with, you know, some, some cows on a nice piece of land in a, in a nice rural environment. Like that's very much, uh, you know, I think a lot of people vision of that type of future. So, you know, you lived it to some extent already. So I'd like to get your take on what it was like, you know, the work involved and all that. Yeah. So I bought a pretty tidy little property that didn't require too much work. And I think that's important. It's like, I'm glad I didn't get land when I was younger because I would have just um, bitten off more than I could chew. I would have got some rough bush block way out and um and broken my back as it is i've kind of i've I've worn myself out a lot but uh but it was actually quite an easy um fairly clear uh, good little farm with good aspect good water 
uh, in, a, in a suitable climate for, for beef production. And so all I had to do was some fencing and some watering points. Um, I built a dam to like a, a pond, a big pond. Um, and uh, yeah, more fencing, more watering points to allow you to rotate the cattle uh, around, which is something I'd learned about a long time ago. And all of the successful organic beef producers that I've visited are using some form of rotational grazing um, or cell grazing or holistic management or adaptive multi-paddock planning or whatever you want to call it. They're all variations of the same thing, which is basically giving the grass a good, giving it a really heavy graze and then giving it a good rest period. And that way you are doing a whole lot of things like you're breaking up the disease cycle for the animal. So if there's any worms in the manure, you're giving that, you're allowing them to not eat their own manure by letting them move on to new area. You're giving a good recovery period for the grass to grow. Um, because biological growth is like a, an S-curve. So the more days you let the grass grow, it starts growing faster. But then right. that peters off after a while. So uh, this, a lot of farmers still just put all the cows in one paddock and leave them there. And the cows go and eat the favourite bits of grass uh, and all the weeds grow. So you, you end up with getting worse weeds and poorer pasture and they get disease because they're eating their own manure. So they're eating worm eggs. Uh, and so you have to use more chemicals and then you have, and because the productivity is going down, you have to use more fertilizer and so on. It's very easily fixed through, um, and you, I'm sure you know about it, and many of the listeners already, uh, like uh, holistic management, Alan Savory's work, um, where you're running, you're mimicking nature by running one herd or as few herds as possible and actually really high stocking rate, but for a short period of time and then moving them on and giving that land a really good rest for it to, for it to grow again. And, you know, so have, um, have you harvested any of the animals yet? No. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So um, I bought some, some steers uh, that were already kind of like nine months old and just grew them out for, for about nine months and have harvested that beef already. And that's pretty exciting. So I've got a freezer full and I've got a generator backup for the freezer and yeah, I've been supplying friends and family. Of course it's, um, yeah, it's uh, not legal to uh, to sell the product, of course, if it's killed on processed on the farm, um, unless it's for pet food only. So there's some really well-fed pets belonging to Bitcoiners uh, in Australia at the moment. <laughs> With happy owners, perhaps. Um, yeah. What, uh, what's the process like? I mean, how do you harvest the animal? What's that like? Um well, in a normal kind of larger scale conventional operation and because of the regulatory requirements, you have to load the animals onto a truck and send it to a processing facility, to an abattoir. Um, and of course, there's a lot of stress involved in rounding the cattle up and loading them on the truck and loading them off the truck. And um, some of them will go to a feedlot, uh, I think, which maybe you guys call a CAFO, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, where they won't be on grass at all. They'll just be in a pen and just fed lots of grain to, to finish them, to fatten them in the last month or so. Um, and then you're in that sort of semi-industrial kind of supply chain. And I, I just wanted to kill them on farm. Like I want my cattle to have the best life um, as possible. And then it just stops one day. And, uh, and it actually, it produces, it often produces better beef because there's no stress in the last days of their life. You know, the, mm. some people say it's because of the adrenaline in the blood or whatever it is, but it's, it can be no, very noticeable that, uh, if you just kill them on farm, um, you'll end up with better beef. So the way I do it is there, there are a couple of local guys who come to the farm butchers 
who come to the farm and um, just in the paddock, just kill an animal or two or three just with a rifle and then start the butchering in the paddock in the field um, and sort of break them down to quarters and then the quarter, uh, so skin them and gut them and so on. And you can get like, get the liver and heart and a few organs there and then. Uh, and the blood, I want to try to get that next time. But at the, at the moment, it just went onto the ground. But in future, I'd like to harvest that too, because that's like the best food ever, blood, yeah. uh, ruminant blood, especially. Um, and then they take that off to their proper butcher facility and hang those quarters of carcass in a cool room for a week or longer, if be- uh, longer is better, um, a week or 10 days or two weeks, sort of dry aging, and then cut up the steaks and cry back the steaks from there. And then I'll go pick them up from their facility and freeze it all down. Um, yeah. Had you in the prior work, it wasn't exclusively uh, like ranching, right? You were like assessing organic farming operations, like, you know, growing vegetables and that kind of thing. Is that correct? Yeah, probably mostly, mostly horticulture and broadacre grain. Um, and bitter culture and yeah, a lot of veggies and beef cattle. Um, yeah, across all sorts and processing facilities to the organic in certified organic industry in Australia is so small when I got involved 20 years ago that I they just threw me in the deep end. And so I got to go to lots of different facilities and including in the Pacific of coconut plantations and cocoa and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Cool. So how, if at all, has your uh, perception or approach or even relationship to the earth and the soil and the animals changed as a result of the experiences of, of doing it yourself? Um, well, it's really easy to think about. Um, so one is just realizing how much time everything takes. Um, it's easy to think, oh, yeah, I'll set up this fencing plan and I'll get some water troughs here and I'll do all this and boom, boom, boom. And uh, actually it just takes so long. And so you need help. Um, and it's important to actually kind of take your time what I've found to not break your own back and to actually enjoy the process. Um, a thing I've really learned is about time and how important time is in that that in the development of farm, like a lot of development of a farm and maybe a lot of things, and it probably ties into the time preference discussion at some point, but um, I think often the best thing to do is to wait. Uh, you got to wait for the animals to grow, wait for the trees to grow, and um, you can't really speed that up. So um, while I've been saying that it's been really hard work and I've been busy, it's also been about not doing things when I... So I'm not just running around doing something that's not probably the most important thing to do at that time. Um, I'm kind of like a, I'm into sort of an I'm 80, 20, or maybe I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm a bit lazy and I like the 80, the 80, 20 thing's my excuse. Fredo's principle's my excuse. Um, so I'm not doing everything that a lot of organic uh, regenerative or biological or biodynamic, and we can talk about those terms if you want. I'm not doing everything that a lot of them do, not, not even close. I'm just doing sort of most of it. And so I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I haven't put any fertilizer out. I haven't done any soil testing even. Um, I'm just based just the, the most important things first 
which is just fencing water, get some cattle on there, get them moving. And then, um, well, yeah, I mean, and to, coming back to your question, like what, what, in terms of what I've actually learned hands-on and uh, yeah, developing a rapport with the animals has been huge. I've never really been into, I've never been as interested in livestock until, um, until really getting into the diet side of things, like until fixing my health through ditching the vegetables entirely and being a mostly carnivore diet and learning about that, uh, about ruminant herbivores are just miracle. There's, these cows are just a miracle, like the fact that they can eat grass and woody shit and because of their rumen, they can um, digest that for us and that we're just completely reliant on them. Um, so getting to know the animals and respect them some more and I was really amazed by, I could actually remember all of the animals quite quickly, even though I only had 15. I don't know how many, I don't know how many I would be able to remember over time, but I was surprised at how I actually got to know each of the animals very quickly, including their mannerisms and their, their character. Um, so how they look, so I don't have names or, and I don't even have numbers on them. Like, fortunately, I'm in an area where I, you know, I don't want to put the electronic tags in and all that government bullshit, you know, so I just know them. And um, my cattle look quite different to the neighbours, so they're not going to go get lost or, and there's not any cattle theft in my area at the moment. So um, I just get to know them. And I was just listing all the cattle and their personalities in my mind really quickly, which, I, which was quite cool. I didn't know that I would be able to do that. And so, how, I mean, what's that like? You know, what's it like having a relationship with, you know, something that you're taking care of in that form, but also in, in terms of having a relationship with something that you're going to harvest to sustain your own self? And like, how do you rationalize or constitute a relationship that allows you to do that in a healthy manner? Like, yeah, I've just found it surprisingly easy. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's terrifying trying to keep them alive, like just well, not that it's hard to keep them alive. They, they mostly just stay alive, but it is a burden of responsibility. <laughs> it's a real responsibility. Um, so I'm constantly wanting to check on them and stuff. I really care about them, but yeah, I'm going to kill them all. I need them one day, but I'm going to give them the best life I can in the meantime. Um, and it's totally fine. I was surprised. So the first, so the first kill we did on the farm, I was a little bit nervous and I still don't do it myself. Like, I don't uh, trust my own skills with the firearms and stuff like that. Like I, I want to not fuck it up because if you if you don't kill them well, then you then they're not going to have a happy last few minutes of their life. So absolutely, just getting help with that. But I but I was there for it and I helped with the process and it was just fine. Like it, it was just complete. It was surprisingly fine. And maybe I was really primed for it. Um, but, you know, a neighbor came over and he was just fine too. He was like, oh, yeah, cool. We're just like the, yeah, it had a, the animal has a good life and a good death. And then you take it apart and turn it into the best food possible. And I don't know if it's surprisingly fine. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at how fine it is once you go through the process, especially with some experienced butchers uh, that, that, that it's, it's being done well. But I was already helping with parts of the butchering and stuff like that. Uh, I wasn't sure how I'd feel about it, but it was completely fine. Yeah, I'm I'm still curious how I would feel about it, having built a relationship with the animals, right? As you just said, like you kind of know them by their distinct personalities and how that would change the relationship of their death. Because, you know, I have thought about this a lot and, and I went on my first hunt a, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's different, obviously, because you don't have the opportunity to develop a relationship with the animal, right? You see it in wild nature and 
you know, if it, if the shot is available, you take it. And the party that I was with downed uh, an animal, a moose. And, uh, wow. and I, Big and animal. I went up. Yeah. And I went up to it and uh, I was curious too. It was more like, I don't know how I'm, I'm going to feel about this. And I went up to it and, you know, put my hand on it and said a few words internally. And then you just went about the business of, you know, prepping it and then you still there. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, prepping it and, and getting it ready to, to move. Right. And I, I think part of my, my rationalization was one, I believe this is the best form of sustenance to optimize my vitality and health and therefore my ability to engage in life. But I think you need to add something onto that, which is that only matters if you're actually doing something quote unquote good with that vitality. Cause if not, like it's, it's kind of hard to justify, at least in my mind, but if you're, if you're attempting to sustain yourself in the optimal way so that you can, uh, apply yourself in the optimal way to the, you know, the, the highest aim or the greatest good, at least to the extent that you're capable. And of course we're all imperfect, but like at least a striving for that, then it, that allows me to rationalize the whole thing because like, I, I don't take it lightly whatsoever. And I want to make sure that I'm being conscious about every kind of aspect of the, the process. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what you're saying. I haven't been hunting. I really want to. Uh, I'll be doing that soon. There are a lot of um, deer in my area that are sort of semi-wild deer. They escaped from farms years ago, and there are heaps of them. Are uh, you back? Yeah, I lost my back. You, you were saying that uh, you will be doing some hunting. Yeah, I do intend to do some hunting. There are some deer you know, in our area, and uh, some guy offered to take me out, so I intend to do that. So that'll be another experience too. Um, but yeah, coming, I agree with what you're saying, and I guess you and I are probably both pretty primed for it in terms of our beliefs about what good food is and how we fit into this food system. Was the best thing we could possibly eat from in every way, like yeah, from an animal welfare point of view, from an environmental point of view, from my health. Uh, ruminant herbivores are the best thing possible. So I guess it's hard for me to imagine what it might feel like for a vegan to, to go through that process because they might see it as, as pointless and they might see it as wrong. So it might be very upsetting. Yeah, exactly. And we're, you're coming in and out a bit. I don't know if it's the Zante internet or, uh, or if it's on my end, but we'll, we'll keep, we'll try to roll a bit more. And if it's, if it's uh, really horrible, we'll try to find a solution. But so, you know, with your operation in Australia, what, what is the main aim? Like, is it building a future citadel for yourself? Is it learning about, you know, building out these types of ranches so that you can help others do so or do them elsewhere in the world? I know you mentioned, you know, the, you were looking into that in, in El Salvador a little bit, you know, is it to just supply yourself with yourself and loved ones with food? Should you, you know, need to rely on that? What's the, the goal? Yeah, I mean, all of the above, largely for learning, but I was also pretty worried about Australia and where we might end up quite quickly. So uh, I did want to have, and do still want to have a freezer full of food. Um, and I've, I've managed to, um, I'd like to expand it. So get a, get a slick little system running and then expand because it can be quite profitable producing beef. Like cattle prices in Australia are at an all-time high um, and it can be a profitable operation just with a bit more scale not, not even that much more scale than mine 
So uh, yeah, I'd love natural... it to be profitable. Sorry to interrupt, but are these natural, quote unquote, more natural operations without the fertilizer and without the feed and all this kind of stuff, are they far less susceptible to inflation? Like, because the inputs are more naturally yeah. derived? Uh, yeah, I mean, I use almost no inputs um, and the price of my cattle are going up. So it seems like a pretty inflation-resistant so <laughs> enterprise. Yeah, if you are not relying on the inputs, but... um. Like my neighbor, it's been really interesting. My neighbor is a very much a conventional farmer and does everything completely differently to me. And he's really rude to me as well, but there's always one neighbor, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> so he's, but he's more productive. He, um, he certainly, I think, would have a, a high yield or whatever, um, but he's doing it just completely the opposite way. So he's using a lot of fertilizers, a lot of herbicides, a lot of pesticides. Um, he does set stocking, so he's not doing the rotational thing. Uh, every winter, he sprays out all his grass and re-sows uh, winter ryegrass and puts fertilizer down. And I just do none of that. Like in, in the weeks leading up to winter, at the moment, back in Australia, he would be out, probably at the moment, he'd be out and he has three tractors running 12 hours a day for like three weeks. <laughs> and he told me he spends $100,000 uh, Australian, so 80000 US, um, just on establishing his pasture just for the winter. Wow. So his and you do none of that. I don't do any of that, and I produce less, of course. But he, he produces more in terms of kilograms of protein per uh, acre of land, or however you want to put it. But uh, again, it's kind of related to the eighty twenty thing. I think um, farms can be more profitable if they're further back down the curve of the sort of the marginal return for another unit of output. You know, it gets it's diminishing, right? So. Uh, Sorry about that. Yep. No sweat. All right. I think that's better. So um, you were saying, I mean, I think you were just kind of tying off the, the bow about how doing it in this way, you know, you, you dramatically reduce the cost of the in, uh, inputs. You make yourself more, you insulate yourself more from the, you know, the inflation that's happening, albeit with a, a lesser yield per acre. But, you know, it just sounds to me like you're, you're more closely aligning your objective with this with the way that nature works right back to the kind of the time preference thing like you're not just trying to squeeze every single ounce out of you know capacity out of nature and therefore putting yourself in a vulnerable position because you need to add in so many inputs to do so you're just saying like you're finding the equilibrium basically between the animal and the land and your own aims and objectives and it sounds to me like you know of course there's hard work as you were saying before and it takes a lot longer than you had initially anticipated perhaps but once it's up and running uh it's a pretty sustainable and reliable uh operation yeah so while my neighbor is out on three tractors for 12 hours a day three weeks solid re-sowing his paddock which then got which then got washed it's not a laughing matter then the flooding washed it away so he's got to do it again poor fellow but um but uh, yeah, now that I'm set up, I just move the cattle every few days. I go and talk to them every day and give them a pad and stuff. Like they're very quiet. And if I need to move them, I can. I just call them when they come. Um, so, yeah, it's really low stress and most of the work's done in a couple of hours in the morning now that I've got the fencing and water points in. Um, but it all ties back to... The, the, I've seen over the years so many farmers struggling. It's been getting harder and harder to farm, harder and harder to be profitable. And... Um, of course, it all comes back to Bitcoin, but that's what we hear, right? So, 
artificially low interest rates um, leading to this high time preference behaviour for farmers um, who a lot of farmers in Australia over the years I've seen have gone out and bought a brand new tractor and it's that kind of mentality of, oh, well, if I've got to, if I've got to drive, a, if I'm going to have repayments on a car, I might as well have a nice car. Uh, and then you're just stuck in this debt cycle, right? It's just this poverty mentality or something, I'm not sure. But, well, the incentive is because of artificially low interest rates and, and uh, fiat money that's led to, so a lot of farmers would get um, a tra much better tractor than they need and then be stuck in a loan repayment. And it's only one or 2% or something. So, you know, it's a no brainer. You should totally get a brand new tractor and get in a hundred grand debt, right? Um, but then of course they're required to have that cash flow every month. Uh, whereas I am not in that position in my type of farming. Um, so like I, I was thinking for a long time in sort of 2018 about the, cause over the years I've found problems with things, problems with farming or problems with environmental things. And been trying to work out how to fix these things. I'm not very good at it. I don't know if I'm going to fix anything, but, but then I finally kind of understood that money was the, was the, the problem with all of this was the, the base layer uh, as, and as it relates to time preference, artificially low interest rates, people being in debt cycles, like people just being debt slaves. And it all made so much sense to me when I brought it together and realized that no amount of campaigning for organic farming methods or like lobbying government to enforce organic farming or something like that, it's just not going to work if the money's still broken. And I was really excited to hear Saferdin talk about it in 2019, back when we were allowed to travel last time at... Um, at Tone's conference at Unconfiscatable, Saifedean spoke, I think for the first time, he made the connection between fit money and fit farming, fit food. And I was just so excited that he was talking about that up there. Um, so yeah, I think this fit money, so artificially low interest rates, farmers getting into debt, uh, coupled with, um, coupled with uh, dodgy academia, like fit science. Because um, I studied agriculture at Sydney University, a very well-respected university for, for agriculture 20 years ago, and they were teaching just like the worst shit. Like <laughs> they were teaching to just spray out the whole paddock and sow it at a great expense put, uh, with one type of species of plant and use synthetic fertilisers. And, and, and the return on investment was something terrible, like 10 years or something, just for payback time. And that's not accounting for if we might have a drought or things might actually go wrong. It was just like the worst possible farming method. And I knew that at the time that I was trying to understand there are only a few of us who are interested in sort of organic and other methods. And, and the rotational grazing, the cell grazing was a, a colleague of mine at university. His father was working in it. And I ended up going and receiving some training from him for free, you know, which was just mind blowing. And I guess that was the start maybe of realizing that the institutions are just so wrong. And um, any farmer who is following what the Department of Agriculture or what the university suggests, they just end up in a debt trap and they end up degrading their land, all the while saying they're doing sustainable farming, because that was the buzzword back then, right? Sustainable farming, meaning like use herbicide instead of plowing the soil. It's like, well, yeah, plowing's bad, but is herbicide better, really? <laughs> oh, we're sustainable farmers. Um, so farmers are just often in a debt trap and have big tractors and equipment that they have to keep the cash flow payments on. So they're in a way really forced to be doing what my neighbor's doing. And they might be turning over a million dollars, but the margins are per year, but the, the margins are slim and the input costs have just doubled. So yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see how farming evolves from that. I think that'll make people start to question some of the inputs and have to have to go back down the, uh, the marginal cost of the marginal return from one extra unit is going to change a lot and slow things right down, which might be good, I suppose.
Yeah, I mean, it really so sounds to me, to yeah. it really sounds to me like it's going to move down to a lower scale or a more like a smaller, a more local level, let's say, and it's going to cohere better with the natural processes of nature in terms of the land and the animal and even, you know, the farmer who's uh, managing the two. And, you know, another massive component of this, obviously, is the melting ice cube of the money, you know, that you derive from turning the, the capital that is the land and the animal and its products into a greater, a form of capital with greater optionality, i.e. money, but without, but as, you know, Saylor has um, popularized the melting ice cube, right? So in order to keep up with the melting of the ice cube of the You've, you've, you've taken one form of capital and you've turned it into a, a ostensibly better, more optional form, but that form is melting. And that means that you've yeah. got to place increasing stress. You've got to try to squeeze more and more juice out of your less optional capital, which is the farm, the, the land and the animals. And so you're, again, you're incentivized or you're forced to say, okay, how do I increase the yield? Okay, I got to use the fertilizers. I got to turn over the soil. I got to do all this stuff to keep maximizing because on, because you're, it's being siphoned away from you, the capital that you've already accumulated. And so I think in, in, in a Bitcoin world where that is completely reversed, like when you turn any form of capital into a better form, which, the best form, which is Bitcoin, then you're increasingly able to you know, do, do the right thing, basically, whether that's in regards to the processes of nature or some higher moral ethic or what have you, because you're not being forced to cut corners, to maximize, to rape and pillage, basically, because you're not being stolen from and the capital, the capital that you accumulate can compound over time, can can grow over time rather than be shrunk. And that puts a lot less pressure to cut corners, as you know, as I'm sure we're all aware of. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the same as in a lot of yeah, getting stuck in a debt trap applies to almost everyone, but with mortgages and so on as well. And it's stealing the their time which is sort of their ultimate resource um just to try to keep the cash flow going i mean <clears throat> farmers some farmers have been pretty clever with and have been aware of the, the issue with inflation even when it's been sort of low um and one example that i'm aware of is uh, some farmers will stockpile building materials even fencing materials uh, steel posts so like steel fence posts for, for cattle fencing because mm. um, they've been a really inflation resistant <laughs> store of value, like steel, galvanized steel posts, bundles of them, a thousand bucks a bundle uh, has maintained the value. They've gone up from $5 to $12 in the last few years. And some farmers have stacks of them in the shed, <laughs> which they'll resell. Like they knew what they were doing, yeah. um, which is pretty impressive. Uh, one of the things that organic farmers and regenerative and biological and whatever uh, have talked about for a while is trying to measure um, measure soil organic matter as a to, and try to quantify organic matter going up and, and indeed that's one of the rules with organic farming you have to maintain or improve soil organic matter over time it's a pretty sensible rule if you if you want to sign up for rules um, and yeah it's a good measure so to try to consider in your economic calculations whether you're depleting that capital because it's 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 not the only important thing about soil but it's just a it's one parameter that's rep representative of, of other parameters in the soil as well as an easy one to measure, which is organic matter. Um, but, okay, so measuring that and seeing it improving, it, 
even that sort of store of capital, store of capital in your soil, even trying to weigh that up, uh, like it's a step in the right direction, but if you've still got dodgy money on the other side of the equation, then it still doesn't stack up. Um, um, it still makes sense to take on more debt uh, rather than have dollars. Like you're better off being in debt. In this. And we've been talking about this for ages and now it's sort of coming up to roost. Like now it's going to actually, I think, make a lot of farms not no longer profitable, that they're going to go bankrupt. And maybe that's what they, maybe farmers who are farming that way should have gone bankrupt a long time ago in that from a sense of like, um, what do they say in Austrian economics was like, creative destruction is that mm -hmm. when the, the businesses that aren't really sound are supposed to go broke and then try something else yeah yeah it, it just it's it makes me smile because it just seems like it all becomes so easy when you have an impenetrable store of value slash money which is the is the end of all like is the is the um ideal end of of all capital in terms of what you're trying to turn capital into Right. You know, so, so that you can maximize your optionality in the world. And when that when that mechanism, which is money, is impenetrable in the way that Bitcoin is impenetrable to debasement, et cetera, it seems like everything else that that money is used to coordinate becomes more simplified, more coherent with like a broader truth about how things actually function, you know, the processes of nature, like we said, you know, and, and probably a lot more things. But it's like. I, it must have, you know, you must kind of sit back and chuckle at this all the time where you see your neighbor and there's so much effort and there's so much investment and there's so much like, you know, it seems like a fairly involved process. And you're just there like, hmm, like when I put on the Bitcoin lens and, you know, maybe when I put Bitcoin on the balance sheet and when Bitcoin is the end of my cash flow, whatever I end up generating from this, you know, piece of capital or this operation, things become a lot less stressful, a lot more simplified, a lot just like more natural. And it, it's, it, it seems like that's the case. You know, these are stories I've heard from multiple people. It doesn't matter. You know, of course, this is kind of a popular one now and people are talking about it a lot more, but it, it, the same goes for many different forms of capital, many different businesses. I mean, it just, things become simplified when you make that switch toward, you know, about what capital you hold and what the productive capacity of your asset what capital you're trying to turn that into. Yeah, and it's not just, I mean, right now the price action on Bitcoin is sort of in a downtrend. And so it's not just that you're always going to increase your purchasing power by storing capital in Bitcoin, but it's most, I've found it's mostly how it's rewired my brain to, um, to fully consider the opportunity cost of, of capital because while it's not like while it might not bitcoin might not go up all year now um i still think longer term it's going to go up in purchasing power terms certainly in dollar terms but it's not always going up it's it could go sideways for a year now but um it still helps me control my expenditure because of that actually having developed an understanding <laughs> you have to have this or well, i had to have and i think a lot of people had to have this huge asymmetry it's like I spend this dollar today or buy Bitcoin and it could be a hundred dollars in a couple of years. It had to be that like enormous for me to actually change my spending habits, you know, and you hear this story many times, but it's the same on the farm. Uh, so I've limited my, limited my spending and tried to just do the most important things first, like the fences and the water points and get some cattle and 
uh, I'd love to have more machinery and I'd love to have a new tractor and all this stuff, but, uh, but that enormous potential upside of, of buying Bitcoin instead is keeping me, keeping me under control. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it forms the basis of how you make economic decisions in this regard. And like, of course, you know, Bitcoin's price goes down and it might in a short term period, be worse than whatever other farmers are suffering from inflation. But, you know, obviously we have to recognize we're at the very beginning of this and like, uh, you know, pioneers like yourself are just now figuring out that this will one day be, you know, this is, this can be done now, but you're still, you know, you're, you're one of the early pioneers that is suffering the consequences of being early in a shift to a new system. But like, you can easily imagine that in 50 years time when there's less volatility and and this is just a the de facto means by which people store their capital, how it will influence all these different practices and, and not be perverted by the, you know, the pervert, the, uh, the, the debasement and perversion of money today. Yeah. And, and, and to come back to your much earlier question that we went off from a tangent on um, like, what's the plan for me? Yeah. I, I tend intended to expand. I've already started sort of renting some more land uh, I'd like to just rent or adjust more land and increase the herd size over time, not necessarily buy property because um, you don't you don't have to. Uh, you can get access to pasture fairly cheaply because people don't want to have to mow their lawns. So they'd rather have some cows in there that they don't have to look after for a few dollars. So I'd like to get up to hundreds of acres and dozens of cattle. Um, and I'd love to set up over here something in El Salvador as well. Uh, but it's very hard to know what to do at the moment, like whether to get out of Australia, whether to set up here as well. Um, and am I going to be able to travel in a couple of years time? It's not clear, right? Nothing's clear. Nothing. We, we mm. can't take anything for granted now. Australia will, you know, the next pandemic, right? Or whatever the next thing is, are we still going to be able to travel? So there's that, that decision making is probably harder than if I could take for granted that I'm still going to be able to travel, I'd be setting up here straight away and, keeping the place back home as well. Um, but that yeah, it might be more of a, of a case of escaping while you can. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's the big question that I think You're a lot of us are asking. And, yeah. and it, it seems to be the case right now. You just kind of have to wait and see a little bit how things play out and, you know, just be maximally adaptable because um, there doesn't seem to be too much certainty or stability in the world, right? Like we would all love to be like, okay, that's the place. It's going to be stable and certain and let's go and, you know, and build the future there. But that's, you know, that might be some years off before we have that type of clarity around such things. But, you know, the, as you're doing right now, there's still much that can be done in the meantime. And, and it's great. Did the, you mentioned that, you know, safety and kind of, you had a bit of a eureka moment at Unco Unconfiscatable in 2019. Was that when, like this plan just kind of burst onto your head or did it evolve over time? And you started to piece more together how, you know, operating, let's say on a sound money standard could facilitate and foster this sort of avenue of, of endeavor for yourself. Like, is that when it clicked or were there other points in the points in the journey when it clicked? I wanted to have land for a long time and I dreamt about having a cattle operation for a long time. Um, but, um, and I'd been thinking about that. I've been trying to develop those ideas uh, before I heard Safedin talk about it. And then, it, and that just brought it all together uh, for me that it was just like, yeah, of course. I had been kind of toying with the idea already. Like uh, 
certainly farmers getting into too much debt and then getting squeezed. Like I've just seen that again and again and again. Um, and then, yeah, and Evan, at that point, uh, the fiat science part hadn't come in either. That more recently, which is another thing that safety has been talking a lot about in more recent times is the fiat science. And so that's sort of added to it with time as well in terms of, um, you know, this bullshit about we've got to double the food production by 2050. Like, it's bullshit, man. I looked into that in detail. It's The data's just, they're just lying. And the reason they're lying is because they want more government funding to be able to do more research and to use it, and the chemical companies like it too because they want to they sell you the latest GMO or the latest synthetic chemical or whatever. And if, the only problem is if you look into it, it's total horseshit. The, uh, the rate of food production is increasing at a greater rate than population and it has been for 20 years. We're, we've got twice as much food as we need now and we'll have even more than we need later. <laughs> like that's what the data says. You look into the couple of scientific journal articles that supposedly demonstrate that we need to double food production by 2030 or 2050 or whatever, and they're crap. They make these big assumptions. One of the assumptions in one of them was uh, that that uh, as standards of living increase in Asia, they're going to people, the rich people, are going to eat twice as much food. They're going to go from 2,000 kilojoules to 4,000 or, or whatever. The, I've probably got the units wrong there, but. I'm like, that's ridiculous. That That's way too much food. We have an obesity problem. And another one of the assumptions was that, oh, a lot of our food's going to be turned into biofuel. I thought, well, hang on, that's a different discussion. Like, you're just, you're just muddying the waters intentionally. And not to mention the fact that the population's just flattening off, like already uh, fertility rates are dropping and they're going to drop, continue to drop. So uh, that was... Um, I wrote an article on that. I've talked about it before in podcasts about how, like, we're not going to run out of food. It's not a production problem. There's so much soil and water and sunlight, man. You can grow, and you go to places like, like here or in, throughout Asia and the Pacific, and there's food everywhere. Like, it's uh, it's just a, a good example of fiat science where they want that government funding, and they want to sell you that latest bit of GMO or whatever. Um, so. Yeah, the farming was a long-term plan and the, the lockdowns in Australia were, I was like, do I go, do I run now or do I try to set up something where I can have some freedom, um, <clears throat> have some food, have some backup food, get guns and stuff like that. And I went with that option, which I think was the right option, um, but also just wanted to explore other things and get out of there. It was just feels so free being here, man. Like everyone I meet... <laughs> Everyone I meet here, all the locals are just having a good time, you know. Uh, a lot of them are wearing masks, but whatever. But not really down here at the beach, but in the city they are. But, mm. but they don't care if you do. They don't care if you do or don't. And uh, and all of the travellers, uh, most of the travellers are Bitcoiners. They're just freedom-focused people. So it feels really good to be meeting every day a new group of freedom-focused people. Yeah, it's the best to run into and hang out with Bitcoiners. I, w- I was there last june i think before the law and then in november for the adopting bitcoin conference um after the law and you know so there was a shitload of bitcoiners around then which was incredible but even just being able you know i think a lot of us for a long time were like hodl at all costs right but even being able to so i was never a big spender but when i was down there and you could pay for a, a lunch in bitcoin I loved it. I thought it was, you know, not only is the, the process super easy and smooth and way better than, you know, the fiat rails, but there's something like, it just feels better. It's like, you're not, I mean, maybe it's as simple as like, I'm not handing them an obligation or a liability. I'm actually handing them like a, you know, the, 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 
the asset that I think is the most valuable yeah. thing in the world. And I'm like respecting their work more in some, some way for doing that. And maybe that just constitutes better relationships and better, better sensations between people that are transacting together. But it's um, even though there's so much development to happen there and it's obviously still, you know, um, coming from a, a, rel a large relative deficit in terms of development, but it's, you know, it's the best to hang out with other people that are, are kind of awakening to, uh, to this thing and seeing the world through this upgraded or more truthful lens. I mean, the conversations that you can have and the scheming you can get up to, and it's just, it's good for the soul. You know, people, the, the word yeah. that, of the word nourishing seems to be coming up a lot lately. Yeah. I've realized that that's the most important thing. Like freedom is the most important thing. So when, when, when did that switch happen for you? Like when did the, the big well, take over? Well, I, I've always um, sort of uh, not been good with authority, which has made things hard sort of at school and university and has, has probably in a lot of cases when I was younger limited what I could have learned from people because I was questioning everything. But that's a fine line though, because I'm really grateful that my father taught me to question everything. Otherwise I wouldn't know about Bitcoin and I'd be one of those terrified um, sick people stuck in a lot of debt and in a, you know, in a, in a job. And so the freedom thing, I guess I already knew it, but man, it was just like getting slammed in your face over the last two with the lockdowns just, and the, and the forced vaccination, like it's just astounding that so many people were on board with it because they're just, it's just kind of mind control. Like, it's hard to yeah we're slipping back into COVID. we don't want to talk about that you, well, know, you know all this already but um but yeah it was really the COVID stuff that just made me realize just how important freedom was to me um right. like it's the main thing like i i i'd rather you know die than than not be able to just have freedom and then and then it gets very complicated into well, what do you mean by freedom and then yeah, there's all this nuance to it of course but um but you know, for a while I was complying with the mask rules at home just to kind of make it easier, you know, going into shops and so on. I put the mask on. It was killing me, man. Like, oh, it was killing me. Every time I put that mask on, it was just like part of me died inside mm. because I know it's bullshit. I know the mask is bullshit. They're not doing anything. It's virtue signaling. Um, so, so then when they, the next time they reintroduced that rule, I just, I'm, I'm not doing it anymore. I just didn't do it. And yeah, I just feel like, in the same way as um, improving your digital privacy by always using a VPN or by switching to Calyx or just taking these little steps towards sovereignty and I don't know, being a man, like just makes you, has been making me feel a lot better and I've still got a long way to go. But um, fighting for freedom just feels like the, the right thing to do. <laughs> <Just for fulfilling>. <laughs> <laughs> well said, man. Well said, you know, and I, I, I completely agree. And, it's something about reducing dependencies or vulnerabilities that make you feel like you're more sovereign and you're more free. And that's a very powerful feeling. And like you said, I mean, like you said, it makes you feel more like a man. And obviously those same feelings can be felt by women, but it's like, it's speaking to an element that's maybe more, uh, more a part of like what we're naturally designed for. Like, you know, and I, I know, I know what you mean when you, when you say that. And 
I think we're all starting to wake up and, you know, some of us have been woken up to it for a while, but like when you enter in Bitcoin, you begin to appreciate or be, you know, begin to understand and appreciate more what freedom is and the value of it. And then of course, all the different ways in which you might go about establishing, establishing more of it in your life. Some of which you just mentioned, you know, and I think that's tremendously important that we, we keep having these discussions about freedom what it is primarily, like what, you, you know, what, why it's a valuable thing to pursue. And then of course, you know, the different methods and means of pursuing it because, you know, and I, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but obviously in, in, in the modern era, we've collectively as, as, you know, as global cultures, we've departed seemingly so far from the uh, appreciating the value of freedom and for the sake of many different things, safety, you know, uh, community going along to get along false authority, you know, you name it, but it's, uh, it's making a big comeback. And I think largely, <laughs> largely due to the emergence of Bitcoin. And that's something that, you know, just brings me excitement and gratitude on a constant basis. Yeah. Likewise, man. Yeah. So what, what else has your experience in, in El Salvador been like, this is your first First time I'm actually before, before I ask you that El Salvador question, yeah. the last yeah. one about, you know, freedom and what you've been up to over the last two years, hmm. have people in your life found it odd that you've turned into like a, uh, you know, rancher, you know, ammo stacker <laughs> beef, you know, prepper sort of person, like, has that been weird or did they already kind of accept you in that sort of way? Um, well, I'm trying to delineate between, like I lost half of my, you know, roughly half my friends and half my family to COVID, the COVID mind virus. Um, so I'm trying to differentiate that. And so, By yeah. Loss, I'm, you mean I'm, you just like could, could so divergent that you couldn't really keep up a relationship anymore? Yeah. And um, yeah. So, you know, excluded from family Christmases and things like that. But, you know, same old stories. Everyone there's horror stories out there so many of them um but then it's like i don't really want to hang out with those guys anymore either. <laughs> like, like we, we worked out who the nazi collaborators were well, maybe that's the wrong analogy but you know what i mean like uh, it's pretty close they're not strong people i don't want to they can do their thing and i'm going to do my thing and that's okay so i'm not sure how much of it but yeah like to to the friends that have stuck with me um it's even even a good chunk of them think i'm going off the, off the deep end yeah and that i'm a crazy conspiracy theorist or right-wing person or whatever and yeah i am i'm like i became a, i became a conservative that was happening before before the COVID stuff and um and it happens as you get older anyway but it's definitely bitcoin made me realize that i'm a conservative and um so but even of... that's probably fairly insufficient, right? I, I think that's why we label ourselves Bitcoiners, right? Because I think most of us aren't comfortable with all the various associations that even if you say, yes, I've become more conservative, broadly speaking, even if not just politically speaking, you know, as you grow up and as you value freedom and independence more, but it comes with all the baggage of the, the, the political divide and what's, uh, what's associated with a political conservative or someone on the right versus someone on the left. And I think many of us are like, no, 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 not in that way. Like just in the way that I value freedom and independence and responsibility. And I want to establish those things in my life. Well said. Yeah. I mean, the, the labels are insufficient and perhaps they're like intentionally confusing um, because a lot of people just think conservative means evil. 
like a lot yeah. of people just think that's what the word means. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, good point. Um, and I don't think any of us are holding our breath for like too many profound political solutions. Like there might be some minor victories and, you know, there, there's some politicians that you might uh, support more than others because they, they're basically trying to min like withdraw the control of government over you, you know, and, and oftentimes those people are on the conservative or the right sort of side of the political spectrum. But, you know, I think yeah. many of us realize that if you don't fix the underlying base layer, if you don't fix the money, and if, if those principles of freedom and truth and fairness uh, are not instantiated in the money, then you're kind of fighting a losing battle. Yeah, absolutely. So even if the political movement that's gaining a lot of traction in Australia now was to miraculously um, be put into government in a couple of weeks' time, like they're still going to be subject to... Um, corruption by by the money system by uh you know tax expropriation through taxation for one thing but then the inflation as well like the, the seniorage from inflation it's just it's too much power for them so they'll um probably succumb to that as well unless they were and, and i've been poking on twitter some of these guys and saying what's your policy on bitcoin like do you know about bitcoin some of them I'm sure are interested and in, in into it and understand it, but um, but yeah, I don't hold too much hope for the political process. But it could at least slow it down until so maybe Australia is not not the place that becomes the gulag. <laughs> like they're literally building. Oh, sorry, we're slipping into COVID again. No, they're man, building no, quarantine quarantine centres. They've built these quarantine centres like that took a mm. year or two to build. It's like why were you building that? You knew the pandemic was going to go that long, and and now. Um, now they're housing people in there who've lost their homes due to these floods now. And it just so mm. happens that um, some of these areas that had really bad flood damage recently are like the anti-vaxxer hotspots. So there's conspiracy theories running wild now that like this is that they're causing the rain on purpose <laughs> and uh, they're rounding up all the anti-vaxxers, but which I don't believe. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but that was getting, yeah, like to the point where I was wondering if we would end up in gulags. And um, I think that's probably going to happen somewhere, right? Like, we're going to get really bad somewhere mm. and so is it going to be australia probably like they're candidate. Up there, they're on <laughs> seems like shit. a top candidate Canada, right yeah <laughs> yeah and um because that it's so funny so even doing a covid test here everyone it's just all a bit of a joke you go in and they kind of wave the wave the um cotton bud somewhere near your nose and they go at the back and they type up a document it comes out negativo sweet mate off you go but in yeah. australia they take that shit seriously like they they'll lock you down anyway i drifted off again um freedom we were talking freedom no but it, it is i mean it, it is crazy and everyone will dismiss you for uh criti criticizing it or extrapolating from it but you know it's always the case through history that that things you know first it's a trickle and then it's a flood and if you don't treat things seriously when you identify the trickles being bad then you usually get caught up in the flood and i mean there's a million examples of that and so even if I mean, and Bitcoiners are definitely among the cohort that have been trying to call out the dangers of certain policies and certain ways of governance and all this kind of stuff. But again, I mean, and many of us been doing that way before Bitcoin, but it falls on largely deaf ears. And that's why I think who knows what agendas and conspiracies and incentives are at play to generate the, the circumstances that are currently befalling the world. And so 
And we, we will never know those things. And so I think my approach has been, and I think largely the approach for a lot of Bitcoiners is like, you, you, you can't know any of that, but you do know that the most likely or viable solution is a, a parallel system based on Bitcoin. So the best thing that you can do is feed into that. And instead of fighting all the, the like rhetoric battles about, you know, what's true, what's happening, who's behind it. Is it Bill Gates? Is it the Illuminati? Is it fucking like, who cares? Those arguments go nowhere. Um, and so and I think that's great, ultimately, because, like I said, we'll never know what the, the true cause or causes really are. And I think a lot of them are also like just like human beings feed into this stuff. Like, like you let's say there's oftentimes like someone that stands to benefit from certain things. And so their incentives are wrapped up in getting things to happen. But people willingly go along with it out of their own fear, insecurity, ego, all that kind of stuff, you know. And which is why, you know, people can be a danger and why perhaps, as you said, like when people are so divergent like that, you just feel like I kind of don't want to be around them or cut them out of my life because I'm almost afraid of, of, of how they see me. Like I'm afraid of what they, they yeah, yeah, exactly. How quickly they turned on us and yeah, it's terrifying. And, and, uh, and even if you'd point things out to them, like that, that the government got something wrong or whatever, they, they would then still say oh yeah but they didn't mean that like their intentions were good and it's like yeah duh like intentions don't matter the the uh the outcome is what is important um so i've been thinking a lot about that lately uh how how we're just so dazzled by by the media by the television but we're just all so brainwashed yeah. and you can and people agree with that people will say yeah you're right but but we'll still we'll still feed into it and like one of the things that comes to mind is um like that girl man Gelman amnesia, just like have you heard of this mm-hmm. one? Gel Gelman or Gelman G E L L hyphen M A double N. They're the two guys came up with it or something. Okay. Gelman amnesia effect. So it's like you look in the newspaper and you turn, and this happens with Bitcoin. This catches. This is one of the things that Bitcoin teaches you. Um, you see an article. Now that we know a bit about Bitcoin, we we read an article oh. in the paper and it's all it's all bullshit, right? You're like, ah, that's not how mining works. That's not how transaction fees work. Uh, it makes you a bit angry, and you're like, what a bunch of idiots. But anyway, you turn to the next page and you read some article about some other thing that you don't know about, and you believe it. Yeah. It's like, no, the whole newspaper's bullshit, man. <laughs> you know, it's funny, man. I, I used to even pre-Bitcoin, I used to like say that to people in my life who I felt were particularly dependent on, you know, the, basically the TV or the mainstream news media for their perspective on things. And I used to say that, I mean, cause everyone, like most people have had some sort of closeness to some issue, like you said, whether they're an expert in it, or maybe it was your house that caught fire that was in the news or whatever, you know, someone's, some family member has been in the newspaper for something at some point. And, it, you know, I'd often use that example. And I think it's so right. It's like when you are intimately familiar with the thing, you're like, there's so much missing from this. or that's mischaracterized or whatever. But if you're not, you take it as like pure truth. And, you know, yeah. as a result, your perspective is uh, is misinformed, I guess, in large degree. It's constructed via false information and false assumptions. And it therefore, it is not grounded in truth to the extent that it might be. Yeah, yeah. But we just sort of... Most, most people seem to still get fooled by it and even they will even say oh yeah well you know they they exaggerate a bit or you and it, 
And you say, well, what are the intentions of the person who paid for that article or whatever? And they go, well, yeah, I know they, you know, it's a little bit, but you know, you take it with a grain of salt, but it's still roughly true. It's like, no, man, it's just straight, it's straight out lies. And it's been, uh, I've been thinking lately about, um, I've traveled a lot in the Pacific and I was told some stories when I was in Fiji um, about what they used to call blackbirding. I think, I think it was called, I'll get some of this wrong. I apologize. But the rough gist of the story was that like when, when the white man came, uh, to some of these uh, uh, Fijian islands, they would sort of trick the locals into start working for them. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, we've got guns, we're going to, you know, it wasn't forced slavery in all cases. In most cases, I think I think the word's blackbirding, where the, the white man that arrived uh, on the boat would show them some kind of trick. Um, I don't know, it might be like lighting a match or, you know, some new bit of technology. And they were just like, wow, this is fucking cool shit. I'm going to work for this dude. And they were totally dazzled into, into working for this, for this white guy. And it was kind of, maybe it was slavery, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. I'm not, I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying that we're the same now. Like humans now are just uh, evolved at about the same level. So, so when um, I haven't thought through this for a good analogy yet. I've only been thinking about this the last few days. But so when we're showed something in the media or we're bombarded with it and it's some clever scientific thing, like, I don't know, a COVID test, a PCR test or something, and uh, we're all, uh, a lot of people are, I think, in a similar way, just want to be involved, want to support Bill Gates and Fauci and so on, because, look, they've got this scientific thing that seems to be working and they seem really rich and smart and... I don't know, it's just a theory. Why wouldn't I that. trust them? Yeah. And just totally don't look into it any further and and then start working for them. Because that's what a lot of those friends that I'm not friends with anymore, they basically started working for them. <laughs> They're like helping <laughs> into that stuff, right? You know, yeah. it's it's one of the things I ask myself constantly, and which is why I try to continually refine and upgrade my own perspective and the information that uh, constitutes it is, like what makes you think, and this should not, this applies to everybody, not just, you know, the, the hysterics, but like, what makes you think your perspective is valid? Like, have you like on whatever topic, have you really gone deeply enough into that topic to as to the extent possible ground your perspective in the most truthful information available on it? And, you know, you might respond and say, well, we, you need to have a perspective on things to move through the world. And there's just too much of the world to yeah. delve deeply into. And so you have to rely on trust or certain heuristics to, to develop that perspective. And I would, you know, obviously have to agree with that, but one, it doesn't mean you just blindly trust everything. As a result, you are very selective in which things are most important to construct yourself and therefore are worthy of the time in doing so. And then when and if there are areas that you have to trust, you do so very cautiously, you know, and then you, you try to refine your heuristics over time for doing that in a more capable manner, such that your, your perspective is not only more, more truthfully grounded, but, but more impervious to being misled. Uh, and, so, you know, that's not how most people get down. You know, mo most people, as you said before, like whether it's a uh, uh, you know, a white guy who lights a match and it's impressive or whether it's a celebrity or whether it's someone that's coming through on the screen of your TV at five o'clock or six o'clock at night, that authority conveys so much trust and that trust 
is just, you know, jacking into your perspective and, you know, the, the meme going around these days, you know, the current thing, right. Where you just open up the hatch, you, you, you know, you swap out, you take the chip out for COVID, put the chip in for, you know, Russia and Ukraine or whatever it is. And Bob's your uncle, like the upgrade is complete. And that's, that's what gets parroted now. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not even that, I'm far more grateful and excited that we clearly have the informational resources now and now the value transmission resources in Bitcoin to rectify so much of that, you know, and we shouldn't spend too much time lamenting the problem because there's much solution to be built and there's so much potential in the solutions that are available to us now, which is, you know, what I think a lot of us are trying to orient our lives around. But of course, like anything, it's important to be aware or cognizant of the details of the problem so we can you know, orient ourselves around the most appropriate solution. But it's just, you know, once you see that, it's so clear. And again, like I think a valid or a, a potentially stimulating conversation can be had if you ask such people is what makes you think your perspective is valid? And what are you doing to ensure that your perspective is maximally valid? Yeah, and so um, the saying that comes to mind, which used to come up a lot in like, in uh, pushing back against shitcoin, um, against shitcoinery in 2017, it used to be really common. It was like, do your own research, DIY. I haven't seen it lately as much. So yeah, do your own research, and um, and most it's people don't. Into and, HFSP, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> directly to a more toxic version. <laughs> We've given up on you now. Don't even bother. But that's the thing. Like some people just won't do that, and and I agree with what you said um, that. We don't really have time to. We have to. We have to take a thin slice um, and make a call on something being safe or good or bad, because we don't have time to know everything. And different people have different capacities of sort of understanding things too. So, um, so it seems perfectly sensible that people outsource some of the decision making to institutions or, or governments. And maybe that's inherently not a bad thing because. Um, because not everybody's actually capable of doing research and um, delineating between, because you tell some people to do their own research and they go in and they're like, oh my, it's, you're right. It's definitely the lizard people. Like it's the fucking geoengineering <laughs> and the lizard people, you're right. And I'm like, whoa, 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 where did you get that from? And so that's like actually being able to delineate, is that the right word? Like between, not go to, not because in, in that way, mean, if they're yeah. just reading reading blog posts or something, they're still just reading someone else's opinion. So it's well, hard is, for everyone. To, mm. This is why I think it's critical that the ability and right to abstain is not dismissed right. or trampled on. Because like, and again, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are in this category over the last two years. It's like, I don't have the means of confirming or denying fill in the blank assertion or policy or whatever, you know, whether it's because I don't have the time, the data is not available, the expertise, whatever. But I have a philosophy or I have an approach to the construction of my own perspective that if I don't have sufficient grounds to, you know, use something to construct my perspective, if possible, I'm going to abstain from forming too strong of an opinion one way or the other. And that abstention means I'm also going to abstain from the action that might be associated with that opinion. And that and as long as people can do that, we're in a good place, right? But obviously, over the last two years, we've gotten into a place where you're not allowed to say no. And that, I mean, that is just like, <laughs> that's a huge no-no in terms of civilization surviving if 
because you can have all sorts of different manners of opinions. It's the lizard people. It's just normal government. It's just people's own evil and incompetence, whatever. But if you don't allow people to abstain from a certitude on any, uh, any one of those things or a policy stemming from a, a supposed certitude on any one of those things, and you, you begin imposing a supposed truth on people or you know a, an action associated with that, well, then, then all bets are off. And unfortunately, that's been, you know, that's been the case in many places over the last two years, which is why so many of us are so, uh, you know, so upset about how things have unfolded, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So was there ever a time when you could trust institutions? <laughs> Maybe under a gold standard, well, there were times. I mean, I think you, you can trust them to a certain degree, right? Like, I mean, you get into an airplane and one, perhaps most of your trust is in the engineering involved in, in the plane itself. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like, it's a risk reward thing. Like, will I trust? I don't know. Well, like, I, would, I wouldn't, if the government built the plane, I'm not sure I'd get it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Right. But I mean, they're like, there's they're all, you take in a lot of information to uh, assess and determine trust, I guess is the point. And, uh, you know, some people may have a lower bar or a higher bar, you know, more scrupulous or less for that sort of assessment. But the punchline is, is if you're not allowed to act on that assessment, if you don't have the free choice to, to act on, on your own assessment of how much trust you should be delegating or, or having in different people or institutions, then, the, I mean, then that's pr probably the definition of tyranny, right? I mean, you're not, you don't have the, the free will to determine your own actions, especially in the case of like non-action or abstention from something, you know, and this is back to the point about why, why freedom has become such a top of mind consideration and such a high value in so many of our minds is because we recognize just what that is. And, you know, what we're talking about right now is basically freedom, you know, the freedom yeah. to, to make your own choices and determine who you're going to trust and pursue the value that you perceive and, and all of that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I was just trying to think if, if under a sound money standard, well, to, I think to a certain extent um, institutions, if they existed in a similar way as to now uh, would be somewhat more trustworthy. Oh, absolutely. But I'm not sure I, to what extent. Well, sure. I yeah. don't know to what extent either, but I definitely think that's going to be the case. Yeah. Uh, I think I think there'll be more trust generally in society as a result of uh, an mm. you know un, un, unconfiscatable you know uh, uh, incorruptible money. You know, I, I, and mm. and I think trust as a currency will be elevated too. Like you know, if everyone knows that their you know their highest concentrated form of capital is inviolable, and also they're in a less deprived state, I think that equalizes things to a large degree and people will start wondering like, or if people start operating on the basis of like part of the way in which I value you is how much I can trust you now, not so much how much money I can get from you, not so much the potentials that you represent in terms of my ambitions, but like your character, basically, I think virtues will become far more uh, elevated aspects of our, our interactions and how we uh, value people and institutions in a Bitcoin standard. Hmm. Is that music too loud for you? It's, I don't know where it's coming from. <laughs> uh, it's not too loud for me. I mean, it's, it's, Is I, it can okay? I can definitely hear it, but it's, it's okay. That's I think awesome. we're, we're, we're close to winding down, but, uh, 
why don't you tell me about what your impressions have been in El Salvador? I know we touched on it a few minutes ago. Yeah, cool. But... Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I wasn't uh, expecting any incredible utopia here. I was trying to keep a level head about what to expect uh, in being a developing country and with a history of civil war and, and safety concerns. And I, I'm pretty worried about like Bekele's safety. Like, yeah, I know he's. A lot of, very things inflammatory. Really <laughs> yeah, things could go really wrong here. He's sort of made an enemy out of the IMF and and the, I don't know the CIA and the US Fed and and the gang members here and um, the drug dealers here and stuff like that. But um, so I wasn't uh, too yeah I, I haven't been too disappointed because I had reasonable expectations I think of coming here. But um, the main thing that I, I mean San Salvador is a beautiful city. I was amazed, a beautiful and very safe. Where I was staying in that area, the pink zone, Santa Rosa, uh, is I didn't go to some of the areas that people said maybe don't go there, but I did walk all the way down into the city and around the town square and including some areas that are blocked off and and having gang members chased out of them by the military currently. And life's just going on. People are out and having a great time. The locals are friendly. It felt very safe. There's not been, I've been here for 10 days now and there's not been one moment where I've been at all concerned about my safety. Um, and San Salvador has beautiful shopping malls, beautiful restaurants, lots of meat restaurants. Like you can get all kinds of steak and seafood's fantastic. Um, it's cheaper than Australia, but it's not super cheap. Um, mm. But yeah, I was just hugely impressed with San Salvador. Actually, it's a great city, easy to get around, everything you need. Um, so coming down to El Zonte, which is only 45 minutes drive, it's a, it's a small country. Very. Um, it's um, El Zonte itself is not very developed. Like the there's the roads mostly are not as you know, the, most of the roads are not paved. So there's little shacks that are shops and restaurants that are semi open air and that sort of stuff. Um, it's mostly locals here. Uh, there's a few sort of uh, I was going to use the word institution institution in a different way that I was using it before, like the the main kind of backpackers where the Bitcoiners meet up every evening at sunset. Um, any traveling Bitcoiners will go there. That's Alas Permanentes, the, uh, uh, which means like waves all the time. It's the big backpackers right on the beach there. So um, and there's yeah, there's a telegram group that you that you'll find and you'll meet transient um, people like us coming through. Uh, actually, some really interesting Bitcoiners. Like it's fantastic, and you know they're, they're freedom focused from all from all around the world. Um, so that's been great. We had a fort, there's a fortnightly meetup as well. That the the guy who's moved here now from Europe, who's permanently setting up here, is running. Uh, I've started kickboxing every second morning on the beach. There's a there's there's uh, which is mostly Bitcoiners. Um, that's awesome. So I didn't know about that. I would have I would have done that when I was there time. if it was yeah. Yeah, and sure. up at Hope House. So for those of you who haven't heard about Hope House, that's uh, something to look up here in El Zonte, which uh, is a co-working space um, and Bitcoiners hang out there and they're also doing a lot in terms of educating the locals. And uh, any sort of a little, it's a place for, for all the Bitcoiners to, to center around. Um, and they're having like um, carnival barbecues there at the moment on Fridays, including ice baths, which was fantastic. Amazing. Um, yeah. It. So it's, and you can pay, pay with Bitcoin at most places, but not all places. Um, and there's not much here. Like there's a lot of opportunities is one way to put it. There's, there's no <laughs> supermarket or pharmacy. You have to go um, 
jump in an Uber or one of the buses. The buses are easy to use down to El Tunco or La Libertad, which is sort of 15 minutes and half an hour away to actually get to a supermarket. Um, but yeah, it feels really safe. I've even been walking out in the hills. I've been motorcycling right out in the bush and um, had no issues. Um, a lot of opportunities here. I, I think, you know, I think I could get to know cattle production here and work with some local people and there'd be plenty of Bitcoiners who would want to buy good stakes here. I think that would work. I'm not sure about the situation with starting a business and with the existing, I don't know about like whether you still got to pay protection money to the gangs and stuff. I just don't know. It's possible right. and it's unclear how that's going to play out. But at the moment, people I've spoken to are generally supportive of Bekele, but others are generally distrustful of government, which is perfectly sensible. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that, so that, because, you know, like a one fellow, local guy I was talking to was, um, who said he didn't like Bekele's government because, and I can understand why. And the story he told me was that last week, the military came to his place and searched his house and they, you know, they had guns and they knocked on the door and they said, we're searching your house. And I was looking for gang members. And that's really confronting. Like, that's really yeah, offensive. Yeah. I can understand he didn't like that. So... I don't know, but the, they have been arresting these gang member murderers. I don't know how many who, you know, like, yeah, I don't know how it's going to pan out. None of us do, but there are a lot of opportunities here. And I think if we go into this big inflationary period and economic collapse, then a country that they're at least talking about freedom. And at the moment, there's lots of freedom here. Like you just do what you want. Um, you don't see many police and um, you can really just do what you want. Uh, a country that's talking about freedom and, and partly just by virtue of the fact that they're not very developed, you still have a fair degree of freedom um, and are on a Bitcoin standard. Maybe that's where you want to be. And so that's why a lot of Bitcoiners are here and thinking about that because uh, that could make all the difference for another version of El Salvador that's sort of, that doesn't know about Bitcoin going into this potentially global hyperinflation, you know, might happen. Uh, might not fare so well. Yeah, I mean, having a, a market that is already familiar with a different set of rails that is not, you know, subject to that inflationary pressure, presumably would be a, a very uh, positive alternative to have at your disposal, even if it's not fully integrated yet. Um, so what, I mean, do you know how much longer you're going to be there? Or if, like, it sounds like yeah, you're just kind of scoping things out and trying to see if yeah. certain projects might be viable. Yeah, just really getting to know the place. And I didn't want to try to travel too much. I just wanted to kind of get to know the area. Uh, two more weeks. So it's four weeks all up. Uh, I'm going to pop over to Guatemala if I can next week and check out Bitcoin Lake. Um, and the, what's, what the guys are doing there, which also sounds really cool. And it's more, maybe more sort of, uh, I was going to say more grassroots. Well, what I mean by that is it's not really government down, but it's mm. still a strong grassroots movement there. Uh, but I, and I'd love to get over to Costa Rica as well and check out the Bitcoin jungle guys, but I don't think I'll get there this time, maybe for the next trip, if they still, if they let me out of Australia again. <laughs> so you're going back for sure. Or back in first. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll go back and re, uh, regather my thoughts. Yeah. And because um, I've got a good thing yeah. going on there, but. Yeah, for and, sure. and Australia is starting from a good base in terms of safety and prosperity and stuff like that. Australia is actually starting from a great base, but uh... yeah, I mean, again, back to the comment about kind of to wait and see right now. Like, I 
I love the vibe in El Salvador, very much echo your thoughts about San Salvador and El Zante and the potential there and the people there are wonderful and it's all great, but it's so fresh and new and, you know, what happens with Bukele and his government and how to, you know, it still, it still seems, I mean, for the, I mean, for the true pioneers, you know, that's what they live for. Right. And they just, they go to the places before it's really determined uh, if it's going to be a success or not. And they reap the rewards for that. But I think a lot of people are still taking a bit of a wait and see approach, uh, how, th- how bad things might get where they are and, and what the better, better options are. And it's really encouraging. I mean, we had Panama uh, like deregulate or eliminate capital gains on, on Bitcoin recently. And, you know, countries, albeit small and ones that we probably never heard of before are starting to pop up and, and be more friendly to Bitcoin, if not make it full legal tender. Which may be the, I mean, just eliminating tax and deregulating is probably even better than legal tender, or, you know, for a lot of people. And that, that opens up a lot of options and that's good to see, you know, and it also takes some of the spotlight off of, you know, the lone wolf that was, that was El Salvador, right. which is, which is great exactly. because yep. uh, I'm sure they're feeling, well, they are feeling the heat from the international institutions and such. So interesting mm. times and, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I love, uh, love what you're doing in both Oz and, and looking at uh, possibilities in El Salvador. I think there's a ton of interest in this stuff with, from myself included, you know, in, in having a resource like that, whether it's one that's lived in or just available to, or have access to, or have a network of these sorts of things so that, you know, should things, even if things, I mean, best case scenario, things don't get bad and you just live in that type of environment and it's, and it's lovely and wonderful and manageable. But yep. in the worst case scenario, it's it's an asset that you would highly value and it, it would be very important to have access to it. So, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on to, to chat about it and share what you've been up to. And I'm sure we'll stay in touch and hear more in six to 12 months time, see what you're up to then. Thanks, man. It's great to talk to you. I love what you're doing. Um, I, I always feel like I'd like to sort of try to do more to get the word out there, but I, I don't know. It's It's... I think I'm not that good at it. So, uh, but I'm really <laughs> grateful for guys like yourself uh, and the work you do. And it's been great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you, man. You too. And enjoy the rest of your travels and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep in touch. Catch you next time. All right. See you brother. See ya. Let's go. 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 Let's go.